Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. Today I have a very special guest indeed. He is a journalist and an author. His name is Richard Gilliatt. Richard was born in the UK. He was a feature writer at The Age newspaper in Melbourne, Australia, before moving to New York in 1986, where he worked as a freelance writer. His work has appeared in many leading newspapers and magazines. In 2000, he won Australia's highest award for magazine feature writing, the Walkley Award. He now works as a staff writer for the Australian newspaper, and he's taken a very special interest in the wellness movement, and in particular, the cancer cure, the natural cancer cure wellness movement. He's my very, very special guest today here on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Welcome to the show, Richard. Now, Richard, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today, and I'm sure that many Australian listeners in particular will recognise your name, particularly as a staff writer for the Australian newspaper. So can you tell our listeners about your background in journalism and how that background has helped you to develop your particular brand of investigative journalism? Uh, thanks, Grace. Thanks for having me um, on, on the show. Uh, yeah, look, I've been a journalist uh, for more than 30 years, and uh, I, I started off in Melbourne uh, really as a sort of general news reporter. I've always had a funny sort of attitude towards the term investigative journalist because I, I've always felt that any good journalist investigates, and <laughs> I've never particularly... Uh, used a lot of the techniques. I've never lodged a freedom of information request in my entire career, I, I have to say. Uh, I generally um, uh, just ask a lot of questions and call a lot of people, uh, and that's a skill I developed early on as a news reporter. I, I actually am old enough to have come straight out of high school into journalism without any tertiary training, and so I really learnt as a reporter on the job, and uh, after a period of years in Melbourne, including some time as a feature writer, I moved to the United States and began writing features from there for publications around the world, and that was in the, the late 1980s. Um, and one of the uh, things that sort of set me on a certain path in journalism was that my time in the U.S. coincided with what I would regard as a, uh, an outbreak of sort of contagious hysteria around child abuse. And this was a period where you had uh, two related phenomena, one being the um, kindergarten cases where people became convinced that uh, uh, their children... Uh, were attending kindergartens where uh, gross amounts of abuse were, were taking place, sometimes involving Satanism, and you had a whole series of prosecutions in the US based around the testimony of children who it was later realised had been induced into making um, false claims uh, by, by suggestive questioning. And at the same time, you had a second phenomenon, which was the recovery memory phenomenon, where counsellors and psychiatrists and psychologists were... Uh, treating adults who were recovering quite similar memories of really extreme forms of abuse involving uh, torture and Satanism and various other uh, very extreme phenomena. And this led to a belief within a lot of law enforcement and police and even in, among the judiciary that, that these offences were real and that these stories that were being told by adults and children were real. And, and it really did develop into... Uh, a sort of a witch hunt, actually. And I became quite fascinated by that phenomenon. And when I came back to Australia, I discovered in the early 1990s, I discovered that it was, in fact, happening here. And there were a number of cases prosecuted in Australia uh, in which recovered memories were central uh, to, the, to the cases. And very extreme forms of child abuse were being alleged against people who protested their innocence. And I wrote a book called Talk of the Devil, which dealt with that. And I guess that really alerted me to the way that well-meaning people, in, in this particular case, social workers and counsellors and police, can get caught up in um, a, uh, a, a belief system that is actually quite, quite destructive. And that's sort of been quite a fascination with me and the way that that can become a contagion, a sort of a cultural contagion. 
it gives you a very good background then for the uh, the recent work that you've been doing in the wellness industry. Um, so Richard, let's move on to that and particularly um, as far as cancer patients are concerned and the listeners to this program mainly are cancer patients, your investigations into the cancer cure and wellness industry has actually led to your invitation today. In 2012, now you took an interest in the story of someone called Wellness Warrior, the late Jess Anscoe and her mum. Um, the late Sharon Anscow, and your published story appeared in The Australian on the 22nd, I think, of September it was, 2012. It was titled Holding Out for a Miracle, but that miracle never happened, did it? So I'd like you to tell us again, what's interested you in the Anscow story? What have you learned from being involved with it, including the follow-up and the most recent article um, titled Wellness Inc., which was in the Australian newspaper last weekend? My point of uh, initial interest in the wellness industry and in, and in the popularity of alternative cures for cancer, and I use the term cures very broadly, was actually the case of an uh, Austrian-born doctor called Helfred Sartori who came to Australia uh, in, in, in uh, sort of 2004, 2005 and set up clinics in which he pursued... Um, alternative treatments for cancer which he assured people uh, would cure them and uh, the what went on in those clinics was the subject of a coronial inquest in uh, Perth in 2011-2012 many years later and it was really an extraordinarily revealing uh, investigation of what went on in Sartori's clinic, which was in fact a horrific um, situation in which terminally ill or seriously ill cancer patients were encouraged to abandon all pain-killing all pain-killing medication and instead submit themselves to a regime of, uh, of coffee enemas and um, uh, the administration of very strange chemical substances such as cesium chloride and, and an industrial solvent called DMSO. And these, these treatments took place in these makeshift clinics that were set up in Darwin uh, initially and later in Perth. And Sartori um, treated, uh, or the clinics treated, uh, around 19 people, all of whom died and, and a, a, a number of whom died during the treatment. And the coronial inquest report, which is actually available on the internet, is uh, just a, an absolutely horrific and detailed uh, examination of what went on in these clinics. And what really struck me about this was that Sartori managed to get uh, a GP in Perth, a doctor, general practitioner, and uh, a number of nurses to participate in his, in his um, experimental techniques. And it really was an amazing insight into how persuasive uh, some of these people can be in offering mm. these treatments and also how people's desperation and their um, uh, fear of conventional treatment, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, can compel them to down a path of incredible suffering uh, and ending, in this case, in the deaths of um, 19 people. Uh, so I looked into that case and then... I, as part of my research, I came across Je Jess Ainsco's blog in which she uh, announced, had announced um, a couple of years earlier that she was going to treat herself. She had a rare form of sarcoma in her arm, which had been detected when she was in her early 20s. And it is unfortunately a very difficult treatment, a uh, condition to treat. It's called epithelioid sarcoma. She had attempted um, an experimental sort of infusion of chemotherapy into the arm, which had failed to stop the uh, disease. And her only recourse at that time, uh, as offered by doctors, was to have her entire arm and, in fact, I think part of her shoulder amputated and obviously quite a disfiguring operation, which mm -hmm. she had rejected. But more than that, she had announced on her blog that she was going to undertake what's called Gerson therapy. And this, again, involves coffee enemas, some of the sorts of things that Sartori was 
pursuing which are based on this idea that you detoxify the body uh, and uh, as I read her blog I, I came across the fact that her mother Sharon had recently been diagnosed with breast cancer and had also uh, publicly announced that she was going to avoid any conventional medical treatment and instead uh, go down the Gerson path and so you had this mother and daughter who both uh, were publicly renouncing conventional treatment and putting their faith in this experimental alternative treatment called Gerson therapy. Very powerful thing. Indeed and they agreed to speak to me, uh, both of them, and there was n there is no doubt about it, at that point, which was in mid-2012, about August 2012, they were absolutely emphatically of the belief that they uh, were going to cure themselves of their illness, and they had absolute faith that this regime they were on, which involved uh, 13 juices a day, five coffee enemas a day, quite a punishing regime in many ways, in fact, uh, was going to cure them. In fact, Jess Anko had announced on her blog uh, this year that she was in fact cured. Uh, she believed that she had eradicated cancer from her body, which was in fact one of the reasons that she had developed uh, a very large following because one of the things that fascinated me about her and others that I came across in my research was that these were people who from a bedroom in the Sunshine Coast or in Perth or wherever they might be could actually reach out uh, through social media to millions of people. In Jess Ainsco's case, she had had 2.5 million people visit her website and had a very substantial um, following around the world. Mm. Uh, uh, the Gerson diet's been very controversial in, in many areas, uh, Richard, and uh, I've actually come across some of the very um, old 1940s Gerson research, and it seems like that back then, actually, they weren't very certain at all that the diet was going to cure. Uh, I've been quite amazed by uh, finding this old uh, journal article by Max Gerson, and uh, I think that's also very little known known that perhaps the diet has been very much hyped forward um, into promising the cures that um, it can't deliver. I don't know how, you know, Jess Ainsco was a very young woman and, and I would imagine a very desperate young woman uh, and, and I don't know how rigorously she investigated therapy. She certainly went to the clinic in Mexico and spent a considerable amount of money, I think about $15,000, uh, being trained in the re regime. And uh, she, in her writings, made it quite clear that she thought that uh, Max Gerson had found the cure to cancer and that, in fact, uh, his cure had been somehow suppressed or kept secret, uh, kept from people. And this is one of the aspects of the wellness movement that I have found to be quite interesting and, and uh, disturbing is this notion that the medical system is corrupt. Uh, it is run by giant pharmaceutical companies and highly paid specialists who have a commercial vested interest in suppressing these much simpler and more freely available treatments such as Gerson therapy and this was an idea that certainly Jess Ainsco and many other bloggers in this in this wellness movement um, have promoted over the last few years and in fact it's always been a subset of the wellness movement this this conspiracy theory about Western medicine but I, I think that what a lot of these bloggers like Jess Ainsco did is they brought it in from the fringe and created it uh, and, and sort of turned it into a mainstream idea by particularly amongst young women this was a phenomenon of social media so Jess Ainsco had an Instagram account she had a blog she had a website and uh, so did a number of other people in this movement and they really uh, took this idea of of the Western medical system being corrupt and cancer treatments being a corrupt sort of uh, um, uh, form of, of uh, treatment and made it a mainstream idea and, and disseminated it to a, a lot of people.
It's interesting because uh, from your point of view as a journalist and my point of view as someone who works with patients and has done so with thousands of patients, I, I have exactly the same experience. Um, we're going to take a break now, Richard, on navigating the cancer maze. We'll come back in a moment and continue with this fascinating subject. Don't go away. We're back on navigating the cancer maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and today I'm talking with a staff journalist from the Australian newspaper, Richard Gilraff, who has a particular interest in studying fad diets and the wellness industry, and in particular relation to cancer, if you've just tuned in. Uh, Richard, uh, for listeners overseas or those in Australia who missed seeing your first article, Holding Out for a Miracle, can you tell us about the key characters that you investigated uh, in that article and about their healing practices and outcomes? I know um, that Dr Satori was one. Who were the others? Yes, well, uh, Jess Ainsco and her mother Sharon were the two people, I guess, in a way that we chose to feature in the story, in part because their, their story was so unusual. He had a mother and a daughter who had not only uh, decided to try alternative therapy and had not only decided to completely reject conventional medical therapy, but had decided to do that publicly on a blog uh, in, a, in a way sort of announcing their position on, on, on their own treatment. Uh, there was another woman in Perth called Gemma Bond who, had, uh, who was a mother who had ovarian cancer and had, had similarly made a public sort of announcement of her decision to renounce conventional treatment, although she had done that through her daughter, Laura's blog, which was called Mum's Not Having Chemo. Yes. And again, the tone of that blog was very much anti-conventional medicine, portraying it as being destructive. You know, chemotherapy and radiotherapy are routinely referred to as poisoning and burning uh, on these blogs. Uh, you also had... Um, uh, Amanda Rootsy, who was a model who uh, had, again, like Jess Ainsco, she had been diagnosed with cancer and had announced that she was going to do coffee enemas and veganism. And um, uh, just... do we know, Richard, what happened to um, to Gemma Bond? Ovarian cancer is not one that has a very good outcome. Well, Gemma Bond's case is interesting in the sense that. If you go to her Facebook page, you will find a posting from about 15 months ago where she is, has a photo of herself smiling and she announces that she's cancer-free. Uh, and there's been nothing from her since then. And I recently contacted her daughter, Laura, who uh, they don't didn't want to be quoted, but I was assured that her mother was fine. Uh, however, I've certainly come across um, what seems to be some, a posting that Gemma Bond herself put up on the internet in which she reveals that, you know, she now has uh, quite serious cancer and is seeking some sort of treatment for it. So I don't know what the ultimate outcome in, in her case was, but certainly uh, one of the other people I looked at in that story was a, uh, a, an Australian clairvoyant called Athena Starwoman who, who um, w was, in fact, quite widely known around the world and she had developed breast cancer and she had also not publicly but had decided to follow the kind of spiritual path that she believed in of, of avoiding uh, medical treatment and her death had been portrayed um, by her uh, partner at the time who was a well-known sort of new age uh, figure as uh, uh, very you know peaceful and spiritual but when I spoke to a close friend of hers who was present when she died uh, Deborah Gray she revealed revealed that in fact Athena Starwoman bitterly regretted her decision not to have medical treatment and in, towards the end of her illness had confronted a great amount of pain and suffering and realised the error that she'd made and that she quite possibly had shortened her life. Uh, and so that was an example of someone who clearly regretted the decision she'd made. Mm. Um, Belle Gibson's one that you've uh, had quite a bit to do with uh, in recent uh, articles in the newspaper. 
Um, how did the first story in 2012 therefore influence the creation of the second story, Wellness Inc., in which you uh, talk about Belle Gibson? You had indeed, as I said, talked about her before. But can you speak to the role that, the, um, that she had as a cancer entrepreneur in sparking your curiosity with regards to her cancer claims? What gave you the alert that this might not be as it's been portrayed? Well, that story did, in fact, grow out of the earlier story uh, in which I interviewed the Ainscoe uh, family because about a year after I interviewed Sharon Ainscoe, the, the mother, uh, she died. And um, she died, uh, you know, only a couple of years, really, or I think two and a half years after being diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And then it became clear a few months after that that Jess Ainscoe herself, her daughter, was uh, uh, contrary to her claims of having been cured and having been in great health, was in fact experiencing quite an aggressive um, uh, cancer in her arm and the condition had not gone away and in fact had become quite aggressive and she had in a sense disappeared from the internet in about the middle of last year after announcing that she needed time away promising uh, you know more projects to come uh, because uh, i should add here that jess Ainsco's blog had become a very successful business uh, and she was making a considerable amount of money from it uh, by la by last year um, but she uh, it became clear earlier this year that she was quite seriously ill and she in December uh, revealed that she in fact had been forced to go into the care of an oncologist and in a sense um, went back on some of the very fundamentalist ideas that she had had earlier on on the blog. She, she basically announced that she realised that she did need help from Western medicine and she was happy not to be subjecting herself to the to the strictures of the Gerson therapy anymore. Well, I became I decided at that point that a follow-up story should be done and I started approaching her family and looking into this issue and that's when I realized that this whole wellness blogosphere in, even in the 2 years that I had uh, sort of first written about it had really become quite a major phenomenon. There were now multiple uh, people in this in this field who were uh, had blogs and Instagram accounts who'd set themselves up as sort of self-appointed health gurus and lifestyle coaches and were offering advice to people with extremely serious life-threatening illnesses, often advice uh, that followed this sort of philosophy of being anti-Western medicine and placing your faith in extreme forms of sort of self-denial, self Denial, yeah, I guess. You know, uh, restricted diets, uh, enemas, you know, these sorts of very extreme kind of types of treatment. And in the course of that, I came across some references to Belle Gibson, who I actually had never heard of up until that point. And this was a young Melbourne, a woman in Melbourne who had set up a, uh, a kind of health and wellness and spirituality uh, blog and Instagram account and had turned it like Jess Ainscoe into into a business. In fact, she had very much, I think, modelled it on what Jess Ainscoe did. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she had a, uh, a an, an app that was available on iPhone and iPad, which was essentially recipes. And she also had a book contract with Penguin and with a number of international publishers. And she well, had published a book late last year. And her story, as she told it, was that she had, in 2009, been given four months to live by a doctor who had diagnosed a highly aggressive malignant brain tumour and that she had undergone briefly uh, ra uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy but found the, the um, rigours of it so toxic that she abandoned it and then had adopted a completely natural uh, self-styled remedy that involved uh, coffee enemas and uh, oxygen therapy and Ayurvedic medicine. There was a whole sort of potpourri of different things that she claimed to have uh, undergone, including sort of spiritual, uh, online spiritualism of some kind. But what really caught my eye was that in 
about July last year, she had suddenly announced that she not only had this, this brain tumour, but that she had four other kinds of cancer uh, in her liver, her uterus, her blood and her spleen. And she'd more or less announced her impending death to... By this time, she had about 200,000 followers on Instagram. Wow. And she had developed a very emotive way of, of writing and talking. Her blog was a sort of a forum of of very high emotion, you know, in which young women exchanged inspirational sorts of messages to one another. And I was really struck by that and by the... That I had a lot of difficulty understanding how anybody with her conditions could have survived, let alone could have looked just like a perfectly healthy young woman, in fact, quite a beautiful young woman. Uh, so I rang her up and asked her for an interview. Right. And she, to my <laughs> surprise, agreed. And so I went to interview her in Melbourne and... Uh, uh, it was a very it was one of the strangest interviews i 've ever done because in the course of it, she began to cry and to admit in effect that the claims of cancer that she 'd made last year the four additional cancers were not true, and she offered this very convoluted sort of reason for that, which was that she 'd been misdiagnosed by a doctor who she wouldn 't name who she couldn 't even confirm was a medical doctor and and it was a most strange uh i got the impression that she was someone who had created a sort of a monster that she couldn't control anymore she was suddenly she was about to launch her book and her app uh in in her apple uh, watch app in internationally and she was going to have to be telling this story of her cancer survival in the United States and around the world and I got the feeling that she just was trying to back out of this at a million miles an hour. To cut a long story short, I did a lot of investigating and I discovered that she had in fact lied about her age. She was not 26, she was only 23, which meant that when she got her original alleged brain tumour diagnosis, she would have only been 17 years old. And furthermore, I discovered that she'd been making unlikely claims about medical crises um, since she was a high school student in Brisbane and had at various times claimed to have cervical cancer and to have uh, undergone, open, uh, undergone heart surgery and died on the operating table. And I managed to track down a number of people who knew her uh, through the years who basically told me that at no time had she ever shown any signs of either major illness or having undergone any kind of chemotherapy. And so I... Um, well, it was difficult at that point to know really uh, what to make of the story. It, it, cl it clearly seemed medically impossible that she would have had a brain tumor so severe that it would kill her in four months. I mean, there's no record of anyone surviving that without treatment for, uh, for, for you know, five years. So what we had was a story where it appeared that what she claimed to have was not true, but we didn't really know whether she had some other medical condition. Uh, you know, did she have a benign brain tumour that she'd been living with for years? I mean, that, that was possible. It was, very, it was a very difficult story in that sense because at a certain point she refused to speak to me anymore when she found out that I was contacting people from her past. Right. Richard, we're going to have to take a break now and we'll be back shortly. We can continue with, um, with Belle and how that moves into other people who have uh, been in the system. And when we come back, I'd be interested to talk about the people you interviewed that had started off on the natural cancer cure path and then switched over to uh, mainstream medicine. So, don't go away, folks. We'll be back soon on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze today. I'm with Richard Gilliatt, who is a journalist, staff writer for the Australian newspaper. If you've just joined us, make sure to listen to what you have missed. We're talking about the wellness movement, and particularly in terms of curing cancer claims. Uh, Richard, you interviewed uh, several people uh, who had tried natural therapies and uh, jumped over to the other side so to speak and decided that it was time to start um, looking at some conventional medicine. Can you just tell us briefly about that experience and what it was like speaking to those people? 
Well, um, I, what I actually found was that people who are, who espouse these sorts of natural therapies are in fact very reluctant to acknowledge the role that conventional treatment may have played. I did, as I mentioned earlier, write about Athena Star Woman, the clairvoyant, and there's no doubt that she was one person who adopted a natural approach in the sense of avoiding any treatment. I'm not quite sure what modality she was pursuing, but according to her close close friend who I spoke to after she died, she very much uh, adopted conventional treatment and uh, towards the end. I mean, Jess Ainscoe herself, uh, when she succumbed to the serious uh, end stages of her illness, put herself in the care of an oncologist. And there's a model in Australia called Amanda Rootsy who has a blog and is, is a sort of an online advocate of, of veganism and uh, meditation and various other um, um, alternative sort of practices. And she uh, had uh, um, Hodgkin's lymphoma and underwent conventional treatment. Uh, well, what I should say is she initially announced on her blog that she was going to try and heal herself naturally with coffee enemas and uh, various other f forms of alternative treatment. But I, I, within a year of doing that, a tumour had appeared on her spine and she was told that she would be paralysed within weeks and so she um, very quickly agreed to undergo conventional medical treatment, uh, which in fact uh, caused her cancer to go into a remission. Now, I did interview Amanda Rootsy, but one thing I noticed about uh, her blog and, 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 in fact, in the very brief online exchange I had with her was that she was very reluctant to acknowledge the role that conventional medicine uh, had played in her, in her recovery. Uh, I mean, on her blog, to be fair to her, she did thank the staff at the hospital and, and said how great they were. But really, her blog to this day remains a, a kind of fiercely sort of pro-veganism, um, pro-alternative uh, health sort of outlet, and she um, really was not prepared at all to, to, to reflect back on the pros and cons of the course that she'd taken. And I, and I, I found this to be um, a fairly consistent pattern in these sorts of... There's a fierce attachment to this idea that, uh, that natural therapies are, are key to recovery and seems to be a great reluctance to actually acknowledge that conventional treatment can really... Uh, you know, it, it really be helpful. And in addition to that, it's often difficult to know whether these people are giving an accurate account of their illness because mm -hmm. we only ever hear it, from, we never hear from their doctors. Yep. So, for instance, with Jess Ainscoe, she has said, and her family have said since she died, that basically Western medicine had nothing to offer her, that even amputating her arm was only ever going to be an experimental procedure, um, and that. Uh, they have stuck to the script, if you like, that uh, nothing she did uh, hastened her death. But uh, the, uh, we, we just don't know whether that's true or not because to this day we've never heard from any of the doctors who, who treated her. Yes, there's confidentiality issues, isn't there? And, and what you say is very true. It's, it's very typical that people will cling to this uh, idea that uh, Western medicine is bad and the natural medicine can't do any harm. Actually, it can do quite a lot of harm, can't it? Well, to me, there are, there are a number of myths in this field. One is that it, it's harmless, certainly. Uh, another is that, you know, it's a guaranteed cure. You know, you, you see that on a lot of these uh, websites. There's an emphatic uh, belief that, in fact, this is the key, you know, whether it's apricot kernels or raw food or whatever it might be. Uh, and the other, one of the other myths is that it's, it's a sort of... That the Western system is this uh, capitalistic, profit-driven system that's corrupt, whereas the alternative health system is uh, is all about altruism. Uh, I mean, all of these people that I've looked at, Amanda Rootsy and Jess Ainscoe and Bill Gibson, you know, had businesses. These were online businesses in which they sold books and apps and uh, their, their courses and their counselling uh, and made quite good money out of it. Uh, and so I think there are a number of myths that, um, 
that sort of surround this whole uh, field. Yeah, look, that's a good uh, that's a good entree card here to uh, stop talking about the younger ones, I guess, and move into the elder ones. Um, and you mentioned in the article Elaine Hollingsworth and Australian actor Tony Barry. Uh, now they've both been promoters of the famous Black Salve, uh, or sometimes known as Cancema also. Um, can you tell our listeners who they are and why you added them to your story? Yes. Well, Tony Barry is a very well-known actor in Australia, and, and he's, he's one of those sort of character actors. He's now 73, and he's gravelly-voiced, and he has that sort of demeanour of a kind of rough diamond, as we call it in Australia. And uh, so he's a, he's a well-known and very uh, well-regarded figure, and I had heard that he had been pursuing... Uh, a, an alternative treatment for carcinoma, which, of course, in Australia is a uh, is a very prevalent um, form of cancer, and he had been lathering this black salve, as it's called, uh, onto his legs, which is a caustic ointment which you can buy on the internet, and it, 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 you know the active ingredients can vary according to who, who's making it, uh, but certainly the it, it works on the principle of. It works on the principle of being a uh, caustic ointment which uh, burns off lesions. And Tony Barry has been lathering this stuff on his leg for, uh, I believe, about eight years. And he's quite, he found out about it through the auspices of a woman called Elaine Hollingsworth, who uh, is a retired Hollywood actress, in fact, who lives on in Queensland and uh, is a, is a, has a, an alternative health website and is again a promoter of this idea that doctors and the medical system are quite corrupt and she has DVDs and has a business as I as I sort of outlined earlier a, a fairly lucrative uh, business it seems selling these ideas through DVDs and books so it was through her that Tony Barry learned about Black Salve and he has become quite an outspoken proponent of it he's taken part in protests to um, make it legally available and uh, he claims that it's helped him burn cancers off his legs. Well, the problem with that is that we don't really know what he's been burning off his legs and um, hmm. certainly what cancer doctors will tell you, what oncologists will tell you is that this stuff will burn tissue off, but whether it removes melanomas and is an effective cancer treatment is 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 a very dubious proposition. Yes, well, we know that Tony finished up having a leg amputated um, due to his melanomas, but he's still um, out there advocating the use of it. And uh, there, there, some melanomas do grow quite slowly and can take many years before they really take off. But um, it's a big, big caution for people out there listening. Black salve sounds all romantic and Native American, but it has a lot of problems with it and can actually spread the cancer. Fascinated me about Tony Barry and the Black Sal thing was that, as you say, he had to have his leg amputated uh, a couple of years ago, and yet that did not shake his faith in black. I mean, he had a fungating melanoma burst the size of a mandarin burst through his leg and had to be uh, given an emergency surgery in which his leg was amputated, but that did not shake his faith in Black Sal at all, whereas he was quite dismissive of Western doctors who he did consult early on but he seems to have developed this idea that they just didn't know what they were talking about and the other thing about black salve that really interested me was it, it sort of seems to go to the extremeness of what is being offered in these wellness websites I, I, my own interpretation is that people in, in a very complicated world and particularly with such a complicated illness as cancer people are really attracted to a cure that seems simple and seems to have this sort of history behind it. So black salve has this history of being used by Native Americans and so there's this mystique around it and there's this idea, I think, that um, it's, it's an ancient remedy that's somehow being kept secret. Mm. 
Yes, indeed. Um, there's more about that on my blog, folks, um, which I'll put on at the weekend. So take a look at that if you want to know more about the black salve and all of the issues that surround it. Uh, Richard, moving on now... Um, there's a claim out on the internet also about raw can cure cancer. Have you actually seen this book that raw can cure cancer? It's an elder couple who have been running around Australia doing marathons and just eating bananas and, and raw vegan food. Apparently it's having a really big influence uh, out there in the world and there's now speaking to us in a documentary that's about to be made. Again, um, the lady in that, uh, Janet Wakeland-Murray, has a claim that she was cured from breast cancer and aggressive breast cancer and uh, in fact she's had a lot of uh, medical treatment in having some surgery which again as you pointed out before people seem to put aside and think that that hasn't mattered have you come across that particular case or anything similar look I, I have come across that I haven't investigated it uh, myself but uh, it, she is one of a number of advocates of raw food as a cancer cure and that's another sort of subset of this whole movement again it's this sort of extreme diet idea where you don't cook food uh, and you often have to eat extreme quantities of a certain sort of food so for instance there's a uh, there's another woman in Australia called Leanne, Leanne Ratcliffe who um, advocates a raw vegan diet involving uh, huge amounts of bananas. Uh, uh, you know, she, she famously once uh, boasted that she'd eaten 52 bananas <laughs> in, in a single sitting, I think. Oh uh, and there's another uh, woman who's recently, more recently surfaced, surfaced here, a British woman who's surfaced here in Australia called uh, Candice Marie Fox, who claims to have had thyroid cancer and to have undergone a sort of conventional treatment but to have cured herself uh, with uh, pineapples and and uh, and fresh fruit um, there are a number of these people who uh, either claim to have had cancer or who have had cancer who may or may not have had conventional treatment but who then claim that it was raw food which caused their uh, their uh, cancer to go into remission and, remission and there's all sorts of seemingly plausible explanations to do with alkaline levels in the body uh, and uh, again one of the problems with these is we never hear from their doctors we, we never see any medical records it's very difficult we're taking we're taking these people's testimony at face value and it's very difficult to know whether their account of their illness is accurate at all. Yes, very true. Uh, Richard, we're going to take another break and we'll come back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze to wind it all up and see what kind of wisdom we can leave with today. Don't go away. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Richard Gilliatt. We're winding up today talking about the wellness industry in relation to cancer and false cancer claims. Um, Richard, let's come back to um, the possible solutions. Anyone can make a claim. Do you have any ideas what might be able to be done? It's a very um, interesting and difficult question, that one. And uh, like most journalists, I'm good at raising these issues, but not so great <laughs> at proposing solutions. I did speak... One thing that became clear in my research is that there are people in the alternative health field who are now quite alarmed and concerned about the impact of all these unqualified uh, bloggers, uh, you know, sort of moving into their space. Uh, the Bell Gibson issue has really starkly, um, uh, you know, starkly sort of highlighted that because it, it seems clear since I published my stories about her that, that none of... Uh, well, look, it's difficult to know what's true and what's not, but certainly she has produced absolutely no evidence to substantiate any of her cancer claims. You'd think you'd be very willing and keen, wouldn't you? Yes, and her book has been withdrawn from sale and her app has been withdrawn and her entire business, in fact, disappeared really in the space of two or three weeks. So uh, I think we can conclude that there is some substance to the idea that her cancer claims were, were not uh, were not factual um, and that has really shocked a lot of people because she had a huge amount of media attention and 
uh, an absolutely devoted and passionate following of people who regarded her as being a kind of beacon of, of virtue, really. Uh, you know, this brave young woman who had sort of just was battling along with a young son against these terrible health crises. Uh, look, in terms of, of where that whether that will lead to any changes, I think certainly it is going to, it has alerted people to the fact that there are some really um, dodgy claims being made in this field and that they actually have to scrutinise alternative health claims as carefully, if not more carefully, as they scrutinise what their doctor tells them. And some of the people in the, in the alternative health game here in Australia have suggested that we need to have some, some sort of um, regulation of people who are giving advice about, even if it's only nutritional advice, about terminal illness, but I, I, I'm, I'm just not sure how you can do that. Uh, none of these people are registered practitioners of any kind, really. They all get online qualifications from the Institute of something or other, somewhere or other, and um, it's very... I, I, how you would regulate that field is something that I wasn't able to really clarify, and I did speak to a number of the regulatory agencies here in Australia. Mm, it's a nightmare, and that brings me on to the next question I've got for you about ethics and responsibilities. Um, and I think perhaps cancer patients don't think this through well enough. When you're taking advice from the internet or from a blogger, where is the responsibility when it all goes wrong? At least in the medical profession, there are ethics and standards so that you can actually go to a board and this is clearly um, not going to be available for anybody who takes internet advice. That's right. Uh, it is. I think the internet has introduced this sort of anarchic quality in, into this in the sense that uh, it's happened very quickly, particularly with social media. I was really amazed at, at the proliferation of these sites and particularly as targeted at young women, you know, who are big users of social media and um, I think that's really caught a lot of the sort of agencies that normally oversee this stuff um, off guard. You know, I do think that there is a growing awareness now that some of this advice can actually be dangerous and that if you have a serious illness, you have to get serious advice. And if there's one good thing that's come out of... Uh, the tragedy of Jess and Sharon Ainsco and the, the Bell Gibson scandal, bearing in mind that Bell Gibson was in some ways a sort of an international kind of figure. Uh, she was about to launch this... She was about to be launched as a very sort of major app developer by Apple. I think that that has created... It, certainly on social media itself, there has been an enormous amount of discussion and backlash. Mm. So... Uh, this is intriguing in terms of how you started the interview, Richard, um, in talking about your book and uh, looking at abuse and looking how easily people could be taken in. So what do you think is going on in the cancer cure and wellness industry in light of that, if you could just summarise it? Well, I think, you know, I think cancer is something that touches a lot of people, an increasing number of people. Cancer is, it seems more prevalent and there are many, many reasons for that. I mean, in, I know in my own immediate family, you know, I've been touched several times by it. And I think um, because of that, there is a, there's a real fear of, of cancer. It, you know, when I, when I did that book nearly 20 years ago about child abuse hysteria, at that time there was an incredible fear of child abuse that, you know, it was a subject that hadn't been discussed very much up until the 1980s and suddenly everybody was sort of weighing up, you know, should I put my child in a kindergarten and this was a, this fear created this kind of hysterical belief that paedophiles were sort of everywhere, they were running, you know, they were running kindergartens all over America or whatever and I think with cancer there's a certain phenomenon like that happening where this, this fear has become quite pervasive and, and at the same time social media migrated these conspiracy theories about medicine and there's a fear of the treatment, there's a fear of chemotherapy and a fear of radiotherapy because everybody knows that they're very unpleasant and so 
that has created a kind of a form of, of I, I would liken it to a form of social hysteria. Uh, but I think these things, they do run their course and um, I would hope that in the same way that the paedophile hysteria did subside uh, to, 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 a, to some extent, uh, <laughs> although it's always present in the background, that this, this, what we're seeing now with this sort of craze towards alternative treatments will, um, will, will naturally have a correction. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm talking about, just in finishing, some of the, the more bizarre diets and regimens. What are your insights uh, on that? I mean, 52 bananas in a day. Um, probably people aren't going to follow that kind of a person, but it's an indication, isn't it, as to what's going on out there and the influence, and particularly the young people being influenced by the internet. I think it's a reflection of the fact that um, extreme fear provokes an extreme, a desire for some sort of extreme action uh, which seems simple um, and it, you know so a lot of these treatments involve purging uh, denying yourself food I mean Jess Ainsco when she was on the when she was on the uh, Gerson therapy was basically homebound doing five coffee enemas a day and drinking all uh, you know juices uh, round the clock she wasn't she lived on the Sunshine Coast but she didn't go swimming for two years because Gerson you know has this thing about salt and you know she described the treatment as grueling and how depressed she was and it's almost as if you have to put yourself through some extraordinary purging um, to, to, to rid yourself of the illness and I think that's been a key to a lot of these ideas uh, that, are, that are circulating around. Mm, I think that's a very good point. I interviewed a, a Singaporean colorectal surgeon on the show last year and he said he can't believe it that people used to actually talk about food because it tasted good or it was social, it was cultural. He said now people are talking about food because they want to get rid of it. What is the most quick way you can get it through your body and out the other end? That's right. You said the it's idea, bizarre. The idea of eating for pleasure, you know, is, is completely lost. But this, the strange thing about it is they're doing this because, you know, chemotherapy and radiotherapy are meant to be these these catastrophic things that are going to um, poison you. And yet the alternatives that they're doing are in many ways uh, just as gruelling, if not more gruelling. And that's just a contradiction that I find really quite strange. Well, I hope you're going to write more about this at some point because the psychology of it is really fascinating. It is fascinating. And, uh, you know, I certainly don't think we've seen the, the end of it. And uh, even now there are, there are new... I mean, recently in Australia there's a couple of new people, the, the, the sort of banana lady and the pineapple lady have sort of popped up. And th these were people I didn't even know about when I was writing the, the Bell Gibson piece. So I, I think there's a while for this to play out yet. Yeah. We're unfortunately out of time. Thank you so much for being a guest on Navigating the Cancer Maze today. I'm sure your articles and uh, your interview today are going to make a big input into the world of cancer patients and uh, provide some food for thought for them, for want of a better word. <laughs> well, look, thanks, Grace. It was a pleasure. I'm really glad I could come on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye for now, Richard. OK.